0: Would you pray with me? Father, we would ask this morning simply that this rule and reign of Christ on earth would first be a root, be present in our hearts. Lord, we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So I want to begin by reciting a poem. Beloved poem from Christian history. I'm going to recite it, but I'm sure that Courtney would be glad to give you a more dramatic reinterpretation of this later. There was a man from the desert with knits on his head. The sand, the sand that he walked was also his bed. The words that he spoke made the people assume there wasn't too much left in the upper room. With skins on his back and hair on his face, they thought he was strange by the locusts he ate. You see, the Pharisees tripped when they heard him speak until the king took the head of this Jesus freak. That's from the beloved 1995 DC Talk classic, Jesus Freak. John the Baptist is a figure, and I might be just projecting this onto you guys, maybe you don't do this, but he's a figure that we tend to kind of want to look past. Like he's someone that we recognize as important, but we have to read chapter three because we want to get to Jesus's ministry in chapter four, right? Like you got to go through the gate, but we don't actually want to spend time there. Right? Like, you've got to get past Chewbacca to get to Han. Then I mean, you can't really understand what Chewie is saying. You just got to go through it. He's an important figure, but he seems like something of a weird character. You don't want to spend time meditating on his words, like brood of vipers, brood of vipers, brood of vipers. It doesn't, it doesn't make your heart feel good. What does it mean? The Gospels do show this sort of weird picture of this wild looking man. He's wearing animal clothes, he's eating bugs. But this is actually on purpose. It's not just to show this eccentric prophet figure, just a spectacle. The things that John the Baptist is doing, like all the way down to the things that John is wearing, are actually meant to scream out to us that he's a figure who's important and that he's a figure that's worth listening to. He's someone who's worth paying attention to. Right? So John the Baptist is out there eating honey. He's eating honey like Samson ate honey. Samson was the mightiest of Israel's judges. John eating honey is an echo of that. It's a signal that we need to pay attention. He's leading Israel around in the wilderness, into and out of water. Well, who else does that? That's Moses' stuff. He's doing things that are meant to signal to you that he is like the greatest of Israel's leaders. You don't see it in Matthew's gospel, but you see it in Luke, where his birth, John is born to old childless parents who have a hard time believing the promise that is given to them that they're going to have a child. It sounds a lot like Abraham and Sarah waiting for Isaac. And the way that you see him dressed here is exactly the way that Elijah is dressed in 2 Kings chapter 1. Elijah is the greatest of Israel's prophets. He's one of the two who raised someone from the dead. He's the prophet who didn't die. He's the prophet who at the very end of the Old Testament in Malachi it said he's going to come back. The Old Testament closes with these words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So it's no wonder that when this guy is out there basically embodying this greatest hits mix of all of Israel's leaders, that people go out to see him. Especially if he really is coming back as this Elijah that he's sort of dressed up as then his appearance is going to be the harbinger of something greater that's yet to come. So they're looking and they're seeing that these are signs. Either this is a complete spoof or something is happening and we need to be there to see it. No wonder why people are going out there to see him and even to be baptized by him. And so my point in just bringing us into the story in this way is just to say, what John says, bizarre as it may often sound to our ears, is worth listening to even worth meditating on. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What I actually want us to do, though, first, before we even meditate on that message, is to just spend some time thinking about where he is. He's in the wilderness. That's something, that by itself is something that we can easily look past. We can miss the importance of it, but I want us to dwell on that for just a little bit. In the Old Testament, The wilderness is frequently this place where God puts Israel to the test. It's a place of trial. So think of Israel in the wilderness when they're learning to depend on God for food and learning to depend on God for water. They get hungry, they get thirsty, and they begin complaining, and time and time again, God provides. He provides, they complain. He provides, they complain. This wilderness experience is a time of testing. Or you could think about Israel in the wilderness at Mount Sinai. When they are learning to wait on God, learning to wait to receive his instruction, learning to wait in obedience to him. Think about the golden calf incident, you see how they could fail at those tests. Or you could think about Israel again in the wilderness, wandering for 40 years, learning to wait to depend on God's protection after fear had kept them from entering the promised land the first time. So This idea of the wilderness shows up in Israel's history over and over again, a time of testing. So the prophets, and Isaiah in particular, are going to take that picture of the wilderness as a time of trial, and they're going to use it to talk about the exile. They're going to use that to talk about another wandering that Israel is going to have to go through. This time when rebellious Israel is again removed from the promised land after centuries of disobedience and idolatry. Prophets talk about that as another wilderness. And it's not just Israel that we see wandering, in the wilderness, in a time of trial? Because that wilderness wandering is itself a picture of something else that's not just limited to Israel. Their, their wilderness wandering is a picture of all of our wandering. It's a picture of all of us wandering in exile, all of us in this time of trial, this time of testing. And it's why, actually, the next chapter in Matthew is so important. So in chapter 3, these people are going out into the wilderness to see John, to see his baptism, In chapter 4, Jesus is going to go out into the wilderness. He's going to go for 40 days and 40 nights without food or water, and he's going to be tested. He's going to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And what we're meant to see in that is that Jesus is doing what Israel did. He's doing what we are doing now, going into the wilderness, into this time of trial. But the difference is that where Israel was unfaithful, where we're unfaithful, Jesus passes the test. Jesus is faithful where we're unfaithful. And that sets us up for one more idea of what the wilderness is in the Old Testament. In Isaiah in particular, the wilderness is not just a place of trial or testing. It's a place of new beginnings. It's a place where God takes what is dead and he brings new life out of it. And this is again something that you see in Israel's history. Think about when Israel enters into the wilderness. It's after they've passed through the Red Sea. So it's the moment of their deliverance. It's the moment of their new birth as a nation. Entering the wilderness is a new beginning for Israel. Think about Israel at the wilderness or in the wilderness at Sinai. It's when they become the covenant people of God, when they receive his law. Think about Israel passing through the wilderness, through the Jordan River and into the promised land. The exit from the wilderness there is another beginning for Israel when they actually receive or inherit the land that God had promised to them. This shows up over and over again in Isaiah, again to talk about the exile. Because what he wants to say to the people of Israel is that this wilderness time that you're going to go through, this time that feels like it's punishment because of your disobedience, is also a time of new beginning. And God is going to take this wilderness time, this time of what seems like death, and make something new out of it. What about Isaiah 43? See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness, streams in the wasteland. Or again, Isaiah 35 the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. So in Isaiah, the wilderness is also this place where God is going to bring life out of death. It's the place where God is going to put the broken pieces of Israel back together again into something that's whole, something that's new. Remember, this wilderness is Israel in exile, but Isaiah also says that this is going to be the way that God brings not just scattered Israel back home, but actually the nations to himself. A highway will be there, and it will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. There's another line in there where it says that even Egypt and Assyria are going to enter onto this highway through the wilderness and they're going to come to the mountain of the Lord. This is God's plan to use the wilderness of exile to bring not just his people back to himself, but even more. He's going to make something even greater than the thing that was broken or the thing that was scattered. And the thing that's so beautiful about all of this is that he promises that he's not going to do it all from a distance. Did you catch that quote that we heard during the gospel reading? It was a quote from Isaiah 40. Um, It's a quote that we even sang in that, that processional hymn. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. The way that we sang it, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. It's not just that God is going to make a way in the wilderness for his people and for other people to come back into the promised land, but it's almost as though God has marked out the wilderness as his own entry point. Into this story of redemption. He's going to bring salvation. He's going to bring new life. He's going to bring deliverance, but he's not going to do it any other way than passing through the wilderness. So it's almost like in Isaiah, this wilderness is like a sort of holy intersection. So exiled Israel is coming back home on this highway in the wilderness. People from foreign lands are streaming in with them through that wilderness to, to Zion. But even God himself is like barreling down the highway on a beeline straight to this deliverance that he has promised. The wilderness itself is not Zion. The wilderness is not the destination, but it is the place where God is going to join his people, where he's going to join Israel, but not just Israel, all of those who will come to him. It's where he's going to join those people and lead them into this new life, into this rest in his promised land, into Zion. You can actually see this play out in Jesus' own life death because Jesus himself is going to walk this highway to Zion to Jerusalem with his followers and at Jerusalem he's going to enter into the great wilderness he's going to go into death but out of that death out of that tomb God is going to bring forth new life and this new life is then the life that's offered to us So you see how the story of God coming into the wilderness and making something new is not just an image, it's actually what Jesus does. It's what God is doing. When you think about all the different ways that this shows up in the Old Testament, it's not hard to believe that all of these people would come out of all of Judea to be baptized, into the wilderness even. It's because they're longing to see the fulfillment of those promises. They've seen glimpses of the flourishing that Isaiah had pointed to, but they hadn't seen it yet in its fullness. And Isaiah had promised something more too. An anointed king from David's line who was going to come and rule justly to give Israel total safety from its enemies. I think that, among other things, is what John is announcing when he says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We read this in our Isaiah reading. A shoot is going to come from the stump of Jesse an anointed king from the line of David who's going to rule with justice. He's going to be the one on whom the spirit rests. He's going to judge justly. He's going to deal in righteousness. And his reign is going to bring peace and justice and prosperity. So swords are going to be beaten into plowshares, it says in Isaiah 2. Lions will dwell with lambs, we read in our Isaiah reading today. God's people are going to live in abundance instead of a desert wasteland. And that's something of Jesus' rule that you see kind of breaks out a little bit in the miracles. You see it too in the ways that he, that he rebukes the religious leaders. But something that Jesus makes abundantly clear is that this, this reign that he is bringing, this rule that he's bringing, isn't going to begin with this sort of like overthrow of Rome or some sort of reordering of society. It's going to begin in the wilderness. His death, or instead of overthrowing Rome, he's going to overthrow the power of sin and death. And it's going to spread as this new wilderness life that comes out of his own death and resurrection takes root in the hearts and in the lives of the people who follow him. And as it grows there, like a, like a tiny little seed that's going to grow into the biggest plant in the garden, or like a little bit of yeast that's going to leaven the whole loaf. That, that idea that this is the way that the Messiah's reign is going to take place, going to take root, sounds familiar to us because we talk about it, you know, Enough it would have been probably dismaying for the people who heard it because they were probably looking for the yoke of Rome to be thrown off their shoulders, right? They wanted Israel to rule Israel. They thought that that's what the Messiah was going to do for them. One of the things that you see in the way that Jesus teaches, that you hear in this call to repent, that you see in the way that Jesus works is that he's come to overthrow an even greater enemy than that. Yeah, Israel's greatest enemy at this time was Rome. Before that, it was Philistines, Hodgepodge of Canaanites, Assyria, Babylon, a whole bunch of different Greek iterations of enemies. Now Rome, right? You knock one enemy down and another one comes back up. That's just sort of the history of Israel. But what Jesus is getting to, what he's going to overthrow is an enemy that's greater than any of those. It's the same enemy that is actually our own greatest threat. Because our greatest enemies are the sins that have taken root in our heart or the distractions that are constantly pulling the attention of our souls away from him, or all the whatever the defenses of guilt and shame we hide behind, the scars or the damage that make it hard in our hearts for us to actually be near him and to receive his presence. Those were Israel's greatest enemies. Those are our greatest enemies. It's because those are the things that will actually shrivel or shrink our capacity for joy in the Lord, or shrivel our desire to know him and to be in his presence. Another way to describe all of those things, if you want to use the language that we've got from John, these are the wilderness places of the heart. Those are the waste places. Those are the dry desert places where it feels like nothing will grow, like nothing can take root, like nothing can live. Those are the places where Jesus promises that his rule and his reign will take place. So my prayer for us during this Advent season is that we will know the rule and the reign of Christ in our hearts, especially in those places that feel like they are the waste places, especially in those wilderness places. I think that's a big part of what John is getting at when he calls people to repent. I found it almost a little bit frustrating that John didn't say, repent of this thing or repent by doing this. Simply just gives this universal call to repent, and the only response that you see is that people confess their sins and receive his baptism. And they do it in anticipation of this one that John says is coming, the one who's coming with spirit and with fire. And that reminded me of a, one more story of Israel in the wilderness. There's this, this time when Israel has been complaining yet again, and so God responds by sending these fiery serpents, these venomous snakes, into the midst of Israel's camp, People are dying. But God makes a way for deliverance for them. He says, make a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and lift it up. The means of salvation for you is simply to stop looking at yourself and to look up at that thing. Look up. Look away from yourself and look at that. Authors of the New Testament will over and over lay that picture over, this picture of Jesus on the cross. Because in this Jesus on the cross, God has made a way for deliverance, a way for salvation. And the call to repent is in a lot of ways simply a call for us to look away from ourselves, to look away from the things that we would want to hide, to look away from the sin that would ensnare us or entangle us, called to look away even from our good works that we would try to hide behind or behind the money or whatever else, like thought salvation we would build for ourselves. It's a call to look away from those things and to simply look at him on the cross. And know that he is the only shelter that is there for you. He is the way that God has made for our salvation. What's so beautiful about this is that it's not just a shield from judgment that Jesus gives us. John says he's coming with the spirit and with fire. And that same spirit, that same fire that will come to destroy the evil that God hates is also a spirit and a fire that will purify the repentant hearts of the people who would follow him. That's the good news for the wilderness places in your heart. This call to repent is not a call for you to resuscitate yourself. You can't make peace in your own heart. If we're going to borrow some of the imagery from Isaiah 11 that we read earlier, you can't make the lion and the lamb dwell together in your heart. Your desires are at war within you, and you can't calm them down. You can't tear down whatever calloused walls of protection you've built for yourself that you want to hide behind. The things that would guard you, the things that your guilt and shame cause you to flee behind. You can't tear those things down, even though they're the things that stand between you and the grace of God. You can't bring to life the places in your heart that are dead. You can't heal the places in your heart where you are damaged. But the promise that we see is that when Jesus takes the reign, when he rules, unrighteousness is transformed into righteousness. Weakness gets swallowed up in his strength. Death gets turned into life because he's the risen Jesus, and he's come, and he's coming again soon. So from all of this, you only remember one thing. Say, let it be this. Those wilderness places in your heart and in your life, those places where it seems like there is no hope, Where it seems like everything has fallen apart, those places in your heart where you just don't have the boldness to even look, the things you want to hide. Those are exactly the places where He has promised to meet you. Those are exactly the places where He has promised to show up in full force to deliver you. Remember, He's coming through the wilderness. Jesus has already passed through the wilderness of death and come back out in new life. He's promised to meet His people in those places, in the waste places in the wilderness, if you want to know, like, where should I expect to see Jesus, it's in those places where you need him the most. So my prayer for us is that this season of Advent will be a time when we long for his presence to cover us, for his word to turn the dry and the thorny places into orchards and vineyards. So may this be a time when we actually learn together what it means to repent, to lay aside those things that entangle us, to turn from the false salvations of our own works or money or success or whatever else. And instead, learn to live lives of repentance as we long for his rule and reign in our hearts, as we long for his coming back, as we long for him to make the places where everything feels like it's dead or barren, where we long for him to make those places of new life, places of flourishing. And may we look to nothing else and no one else for our salvation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.